Well, my name is David Winger, and I am blessed to serve as the associate pastor here at Hallmark. And uh, it's a great honor and privilege to kick off a new series this morning from the Old Testament book of Amos. And so uh, before you turn to the book of Amos, I'm going to help you out this morning. Instead of turning directly to the book of Amos, as I know many of you are ready to do it, you know exactly where it is this morning. You have your thumb right there. Instead of doing that, turn to the table of contents if you have a hard copy of God's Word. Table of contents, the very beginning of your Bible, and I'm going to help a lot of you out. Because some of you would have taken quite a long time to turn to the book of Amos because the book of Amos isn't very famous, let's be honest, all right? It wasn't uh, high on the list of your books of the Bible to read in 2019. And uh, you'll probably understand that a little bit better when I finish today. But I want you to look at the table of contents in your hard copy of God's Word. And if yours is anything like mine, you have two headings. One says Old Testament and has a list of the books. One says New Testament. Look at the Old Testament heading there. There are 39 Old Testament books in the Bible. And the first 17, uh, from Genesis all the way up through Esther, are what theologians call the history books. The history books. History of the people of Israel. And then there are the poetry books. Those are the next five books. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. If you're like me, those are some of my favorite books of the Bible to read. I love reading through uh, the Psalms. I love reading through Proverbs. Even Ecclesiastes gives you tremendous perspective on life. And so those are the poetry books, those five. The last 17 books listed under Old Testament are... Uh, the prophets, prophecies. So we have history, poetry, prophecy. Uh, and, and we have among those last 17 books, there's major prophets, there's minor prophets. Uh, the first five, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, those are the major prophets. And then the last 12, sometimes you're even referred to as the 12, are the minor prophet books. We're going to be looking at a minor prophet today. Amos. Now, just because they're minor prophets doesn't mean they're less important. It just means that the books are a little bit smaller. The major prophets are longer. And uh, some of the major prophets, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, they they speak not just to an immediate context there, but they talk on a global scale. Sometimes they mention the birth uh, of Jesus Christ and what's coming ultimately. And so there's kind of an ultimate fulfillment there, especially in the book of Daniel, where he talks about end times. In fact, many times you'll study the book of Daniel in partnership with the book of Revelation because there's so much there about the end times. But Amos was a particular prophet sent to a particular people about a particular time that God was going to judge the nation nation of Israel. And so uh, the second reason I had you turn to the table of contents is so you could look at the page number where you will find Amos in your Bibles so you don't stumble around. So my page is uh, 1297. So now turn to the book of Amos. That's where we're going to be this morning. And really for the next three weeks, we're going to be in a series on the book of Amos. And again, it's a privilege for me to kick off that series. Um, I I love being the first to preach because I can pretty much just say whatever I want and then they have to pick up the pieces over the next two weeks. And so thank you, Pastor John. Uh, I appreciate that. But there's, a, there's another reason that the book of Amos is not so famous. Not only is it a small, minor prophet, and it's two particular people, and so sometimes we think that it has nothing to do with us. I mean, what does this guy 3,000 years ago have to say uh, to us today? Well, I would say that he has a lot to say to us today, 
But what he has to say to us today by the Holy Spirit isn't a real positive message. That's another reason Amos is not so famous. We all, we all love good news, don't we? We all love people to say, man, you're awesome. Well, thank you. <laughs> you know, that's what I think, but it's good to hear another opinion. Uh, we like to hear good news, but we hate to hear bad news. Don't you hate to be called in uh, for a yearly review and have to give an account of what you said you were going to do versus what you actually do by your boss? Nobody likes to be called on the carpet, as it were, and Amos is an entire book of God calling his people on the carpet. Amos is a country preacher that brings the thunder, and it's the thunder of God's judgment. That's another reason it's not so famous. But you know what I've noticed in life? We all have people in our lives that we would consider our greatest fans, and then others who are our greatest enemies, you know? And one of the things I've learned is that your greatest fans will always like your ideas and things that you do, even if it's bad. And your greatest enemies will always hate your ideas and what you do, because even if it's good, they'll hate it because they just don't like you very much. Our true friends will be able to tell us the difference. And if that's true, then Amos is really our dear friend this morning because he brings a word from God to our lives that is very relevant to where we are today. The outline today is going to be pretty straightforward, very simple. It's in your bulletin. We're going to look at three things. The man, the message, and the meaning from Amos chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let's dive right in and look at the guy whom the book is named after, Amos. He's the prophet. And he was a remarkable man in that he is not very remarkable at all. His resume is kind of laughable. In fact, I've, I've broken up um, the subpoints there under the man in three headings. He was really a nobody uh, in, in Bible times. He was really just nobody. Um, he, he describes himself in verse 1. We find out about him. It says, The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So here he is. He's just a sheep breeder of Tekoa. And if you read through the book of Amos, and I encourage you to do it several times over the next couple weeks as we're studying this book, you'll also find in chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, that not only was he a sheep breeder or kind of a shepherd, a sheep herder, in a small town of Tekoa, he was also kind of a, I don't know, he, he took care of fruit trees, sycamore trees. He, he was a tree trimmer. Maybe he had a tree business. Maybe he, um, you know, he had, maybe it was a small operation. You never know. He may have had branches all over uh, Judah. It's kind of a bad joke, but I'm a dad. But he was basically a nobody. He was a sheep breeder. He was a tree trimmer uh, from Tekoa. I love Facebook because it helps us to, us to stay connected to people we normally wouldn't see, and I like when I see their, uh, their pictures and their family and updated posts and stuff. And, and I lived in Great Falls, Montana for a while. My dad pastored a church there, and there was a man in our church named Clarence Wood, and he was a, a naval veteran who fought in the war. And after he uh, retired from the Navy, he moved back home to uh, Great Falls, Montana, and he started a tree trimming business, and it was called Woody's Tree Service. Uh, Clarence Wood. Just a great guy. I remember, you know, he was one of these tough, tough and rough guys. He would put me in thumb locks and uh, make me cry uncle and all that stuff when I was a kid growing up. But one of the things I appreciate about Clarence Wood is that he, he allowed me to work with him over the summer. A couple Saturdays 
a month. And in those few Saturdays, he taught me about hard work. I mean, how to keep working when you want to quit because we're not done yet. The day is not over yet, you know. And uh, he taught me to appreciate a good home-packed lunch for my mom because we had worked so hard that by lunchtime, I could not wait to tear in uh, to that brown sack. Uh, but another thing I appreciate about Clarence Wood is not only did he teach me the value of hard work as a tree trimmer, but everywhere he went, every person he interacted with, he was so kind and gentle to them, and they knew quickly that Clarence Wood loved Jesus Christ. Everywhere he went, every customer he serviced, he told them about Jesus Christ. And he always had a pile of tracks in his old smelly work truck, and he was quick to hand them out. And so I am forever grateful to a tree trimmer named Clarence Wood, who showed me what it was like to just be an ordinary guy doing ordinary things, uh, but taking the extraordinary message of the gospel with him everywhere he went. And as I was reading about Amos, he was a sheep breeder and a tree trimmer. He was just, he was really a nobody. But he got called by God to do something very important. And so Amos was just a sheep shearing tree trimmer from Tekoa. So he was a nobody, but he was also from nowhere. Where is Tekoa and why should we care? Well, Tekoa was located in Judah, which is the southern kingdom um, at this time. Uh, the, the two kingdoms of Israel are split. There's the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and then the southern kingdom of Judah. And Tekoa was just about six miles outside of Bethlehem which should trigger some uh, memories for most of you. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and the first to share the good news about Jesus were a couple sheep breeders and shepherds, right, from around the hillside of Bethlehem. So this would not be the last time that Jesus called on a sheep breeder to uh, share important news. But Tekoa was really in the middle of nowhere. In fact, it looked out on desolate wilderness. It was a town on the edge of nowhere. And so he was from the country, he was, he was a nobody from nowhere. I mean, you couldn't really put the pieces together about Amos at all. Uh, his resume, his, his dad was not a prophet, a priest, or a king. Uh, he had no real family heritage. He was just an ordinary guy, but he was called to do something very extraordinary. A nobody from nowhere. And then the third thing is that he was called by someone to say something very important for everyone. You see, the thing that separates Amos from everybody else in his day, is that God had called him to a very important task. He was an ordinary guy, but he had an extraordinary calling. God had called him. He redirected his life. In fact, the, the meaning of the name Amos is burdened in Hebrew. So God gives this ordinary guy an extraordinary burden to speak on his behalf to his people. You know, all prophets throughout Scripture, it's important that we, that we understand this, is that these were just ordinary men, but they had an extraordinary calling from God. They were just to be God's mouthpiece to the people that God was sending them to. Uh, we read in 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21, that no prophecy is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And holy men spoke... Uh, God chose to speak through them and to use their, their perspective, their style, their voice in a wonderful and unique way, and we're going to see that in the life of Amos. So in summary, Amos was just a nobody from nowhere trying to tell everybody about somebody who was willing to save anybody that would repent and believe. That's so encouraging to me because sometimes I just feel like a, a nobody from nowhere. But we're all called by somebody to tell everybody about somebody who will save anybody uh, that will repent and believe. So that's the man. 
Amos, burdened. He was burdened by God, a prophet uh, that was called for such a time as this. Now let's take a look at his message. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time uh, today. All that we know about Amos is, is wrapped up in verse 1, but we also get some, some context here of, of who he is and where he, where he is and where he ministers and the time frame of his ministry uh, under uh, verses 1 and 2 there. So let's take a look at the chronology of this man's message. He said, He saw these things concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And so we know that it was around 755, 756 B.C. that Amos is called to prophesy to Israel. So it's during the reign of King Uzziah. And by the way, that's the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, King Jeroboam, in the northern kingdom called Israel. After Solomon ruled and reigned, popular King Solomon, the kingdom was divided. There was a northern kingdom containing ten tribes, a southern kingdom containing two tribes. The kingdom of Judah, through which uh, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus himself, would be born, was in the south. Uh, God promised long ago to provide you know, the Messiah through the lineage of Judah. And then, so that's King David and then Solomon and all of his sons. And so if you read through First and Second Kings, which gives kind of an account of all that happened during this time period, you'll see that in Judah, only... Kings from the line of David reigned the whole time. Some were good kings, some were bad kings. But in the northern kingdom of Israel, these were not kings from the line of David. And most of them were evil in the eyes of God. This is the time in which Amos is called. And Amos is from the southern kingdom of Judah. That's where Bethlehem and Tekoa is. And so God is asking this country preacher to travel to the big city north in Israel to let them know, thus says the Lord and to tell them about the judgment that's coming. There's an earthquake that's mentioned there, the great earthquake, and we don't really know uh, when that occurred, but we, uh, but we know that it was a big one because it was mentioned 200 years later by Zechariah in chapter 14, verse 15 of his book as well. And so we, it's roughly 755, 754 B.C. It is just before the Assyrians were allowed to come and sweep through Israel and take them captive, and then Babylon comes up and takes over Judah. But there are two kingdoms. They've been divided for about 150 years. They both, at this time, were experiencing peace and prosperity uh, because of the leadership that their kings uh, were able to, uh, to implement there. But the bad news is, is that they attributed their peace and prosperity, both Israel and Judah, to God's blessing, and they could not be further from the truth. In fact, as you kind of look at the setting that Amos was called to, it should be reminiscent of the culture that we live in today. We have peace and prosperity, and we think, man, God's really blessing. Don't be so sure. There may be judgment coming. So that's the chronology of Amos's message. Now let's look at its creativity. I love how he starts in verse 2 of chapter 1. He says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. He likens the Lord's voice uh, to the roar of a lion. He is the lion of Judah who roars from the holy city of Jerusalem and from Mount Zion. I don't know if you've ever been visiting the Fort Worth Zoo, but the thing that stood out to me is anywhere I was in the zoo at any given time, when the male lion decided to roar, 
uh, it captured your attention, did it not? You could hear him from all over the zoo. And, you know, the lion, when he roars, is not just king of the jungle. He's pretty much king of anywhere the lion might be at any given time because he captures your attention. There's nothing like the roar of a lion. And so, and so Amos starts his, his message, his prophecy to Israel saying, there is a lion and he is roaring. In other words, attention, attention. The king who is king of all kings, the Lord who is Lord of all lords, he is roaring from his holy city, Jerusalem, from his mountain. He's very creative, very creative. Um, Amos was not a big city guy, right? He was from Tekoa. He's from the middle of nowhere. He was kind of the country cousin. He spent most of his time outside. And so all of his analogies while he's preaching, God speaks through his personality and his perspective. And so a lot of his analogy and illustrations are from the country. They're not from the city. He's talking about lions, and he's talking about fire, and he's talking about trees, and he's talking about sheep, especially when he gets to the latter part of his prophecy. He starts using these, these pictures, these visual pictures. And God used that. As I started thinking about um, Amos being a country boy, you know, and using some creativity in his message, it reminded me of an old song by Randy Travis from back in the 80s. I know none of you listened to Randy Travis in the 80s, but he had a love song that used analogies of nature. Our love is deeper than the hollow, stronger than the river, higher than the pine tree growing tall upon the hill. Our love is purer than the snowflake that falls in late December as honest as a robin on a springtime windowsill. And longer than the song of a whippoorwill. You guys remember that? It's a great song, yeah, yeah. You're welcome. You can look it up on your way home, play for your wife. Uh, but this is like Amos. Amos is using these country, these country scenes, these country pictures to describe how God is going to bring his judgment. And he says, the lion roars. You know, teenagers are over there like... Who is Randy Travis? And why should I care? Okay, so maybe, maybe if Amos had been from the city, he would, have, he would have preached to Israel, all you do is sin, sin, sin no matter what. Anyway, I wanted to give him that one. I told you it was coming. Sometimes I warn my uh, teenage daughter when I'm about to do something really ridiculous so she can hide her face. But his message had creativity. And he may not have, it may not have been sing-songy, but it for sure had a cadence. I want you to notice something as he begins uttering his pronouncements against the nations. Look at verse 3. He says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. Look down um, a little bit further to verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four. Verse 9, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four. And so there's this cadence uh, that he pronounces, and, and this is meaningful. We can learn from this because it is a Jewish idiom which essentially means, man, you've done it this time. You have gone too far this time. It, it's, for, it's for atrocity after atrocity. It's for sin after sin after sin. All you do is sin, sin, sin. That's basically what he's saying every few verses as he pronounces God's condemnation and judgment upon uh, the people of these nations. It's kind of like how you discipline your kids. Um, some of you say, hey, Junior, let go of your sister's hair. Three, two, I better not get to one. One and a half. <laughs> one and three. And, and by the time you get to one, you know, you know the judgment is coming. There's some invisible line 
between mercy and wrath, and they have just crossed it. That's what Amos is doing. He's saying for three transgressions and now a fourth. Amos is basically saying God is done. He is done. No more warnings. He has warned you enough. You have gone too far. Judgment is coming. And judgment would be coming because God for hundreds and hundreds of years has been warning these wicked kings about their half-hearted worship, about their moral decay. And they've ignored him every time up until now. So there's its creativity, its cadence. Uh, Look at the condemnation of his message. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning with the bulk of Scripture here. The climate of the city culture in Israel uh, that country boy Amos walked into was very similar to what we face today. It was a climate of financial prosperity, of religious hypocrisy, and moral degeneracy. Some of the, some of the descriptions of the atrocities uh, committed by some of these nations are, are rated R. I mean, it's just horrible to see what they have done and what they were guilty of. But Amos begins to pronounce God's wrath against sin, and he begins with a distant place, naming the capital of a region, and then he slowly works his way in almost a concentric circle of condemnation, almost like a reverse ripple effect. He starts out wide, and then he zeroes in until finally he gets to the target of the bullseye. I've included a map here in my notes, and I wanted to put it up for you today. I know it's hard to read, but it just this is what... It looked like when Amos came um, and was sent by God from Judah, the southern kingdom, to Israel, the northern kingdom. And he starts with a faraway place, a faraway people that aren't even related to Israel. He starts with Damascus in verse 3. He says, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Haziel, which shall devour the places of ben the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden. The people of Syria shall go captive to Kerr, says the Lord. And so he starts with the Syrians and their capital is Damascus. Syria is probably Israel's most persistent enemy even to this day, to this day. And the Syrians had stored up the wrath of God against themselves by, it says, quote, threshing Gilead with implements of iron. Now, theologians differ on what this means. Some say literally they went into the fields and they used, you know, something that's the equivalent of a sledgehammer to thresh these fields. And so they ruined their fields. I disagree with that. I think it's something more egregious. I think that Elisha the prophet described what they were going to do In 2 Kings 8, verses 10 through 12, in fact, uh, Hazael was sick, and Elisha came uh, to to pray for him to see if he would be healed, and and God did heal the king, but then God also showed Elisha what this king would do uh, to his people. And he wept, and the king said, why are you crying? And Elisha said in 2 Kings 8, 10 through 12, he says, you will set their strongholds on fire. You will kill their young men with the sword and you will dash their children. You will rip open their women with child. I think that's the atrocity that Damascus committed against the people of Israel. And God said, enough. 
I've had enough. No more warnings. Judgment is coming. So he starts in the far north with Damascus in verse 3. Then he travels to the far south and talks about Gaza in verse 6. He says, For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they took captive the whole captivity to, to deliver them up to Edom. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Do you remember the Philistines? Goliath came from the Philistines, right? There's five cities there, and he starts to name them. Gaza is the chief city among the Philistines. And in 2 Chronicles 21, 16 through 17, we read that the Philistines destroyed an entire Israeli settlement. Then they swept away the remnant of the population and delivered them as slaves to Edom. And Edom was the last place on earth any Hebrew wanted to be. And so God says, because you've done this, judgment is coming. Then Amos preaches against Tyre in verses 9 through 10. It says, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom. There they are selling slaves, Hebrew slaves to Edom again, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood, but I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces. So Tyre of Phoenicia, Phoenicia was an incredibly powerful and wealthy coastal city. You know, Tyre may have been the first place um, to invent the rubberized wheel. I don't know, tire, rubberized wheel. I don't know, maybe it's a stretch. But they were actually in league in partnership with Israel. In fact, in 1 Kings 5.1, we're told that the king of Tyre, he greatly admired King David. That is until Tyre became misaligned uh, with the kingdom of Israel, and then they sold slaves to the Edomites. So God would flatten them. It would not be a good year. I'm sorry, okay, I'm done. I'm done with that. But he, he, he calls down the wrath of God on Tyre. Now, at this point, Amos is preaching against foreign people that aren't even connected to the people of Israel. And so they love his message. We're not told at, in what kind of setting Amos preached, but I, I would imagine that people started gathering and they're like, yeah, preach it. Who is he preaching against? The Syrians, yeah, amen, amen. The Philistines, yeah, we hate the Philistines. What do you have to say about, uh, about Phoenicia? Yeah, we don't like Phoenicia either. They sold my cousin into slavery. And they're probably pulling up chairs and they're gathered around this country preacher. They're like, he doesn't smell very good, but what he's saying sounds great. And so he's kind of getting popular. And so now the concentric circle of condemnation shrinks a little bit more and he gets a little closer to home. Geographically and also relationally because these people, the next three groups, are distant relatives of the people of Israel. He talks about Ammon in verses 13 and 15 and, in Mo and talks about Moab in chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. Now Ammon and Moab had shameful beginnings. You can read about the beginning of those cultures, those neighboring nations in Genesis 19, 30 through 36. Do you guys remember the story of Abraham and Lot? And Lot set up his tent facing Sodom and Gomorrah and eventually ends up in the city, Sin City, and God judges Sodom and Gomorrah. He rains down fire and brimstone, and they flee the city with their family. And then Lot's wife turns back and turns to salt. So now it's just Lot and his two daughters. Well, if you go back to Genesis 19, verses 30 through 36, you'll read that his two daughters were afraid that their father's name 
would not live on. And so they get their dad drunk. And they have an incestuous relationship with their dad. And all God's people said, ooh, it's gross, it's disgusting. Well, they named one son Ammon. They named the other son Moab, from which we get the Ammonites and the Moabites. And so these nations were started with perversion, and the perversion just continued generation after generation. They worshiped false gods. They sacrificed their children to demon gods named Molech and Chemosh. They did horrible things in the sight of God, and God warned them over and over and over again, and they refused to listen to his merciful pleas. And so, Amos says, for three sins and a fourth, God will judge you. He will destroy the nations. Well, people were starting to get even more excited about Amos' sermon because of the condemnation of their enemies. I mean, man, the Ammonites and the Moabites, they were a plague to Israel. And so they were like, yes, I'm, I'm liking this guy. I think we should extend revival. Let's go get a tent and set the tent up for this guy. Let's find some offering plates and start passing these plates for this country preacher because this is so good. It would be like a pastor coming and filling this pulpit talking about the atrocities of some foreign godless nation like North Korea or Iran. We'd be like, that's right. Those heathens, God's going to judge them. Those terrorists that plague our existence. But then it got even better because he started talking about groups around them, maybe groups with, within the United States, groups that we don't disagree with, or groups that we don't agree with politically, uh, racially, and then he starts talking about those liberals and them homosexuals and those socialists that want to change our country, and we're like, amen, and that other political party that we're so opposed to, they're like, this is getting good, preach it, fire, preach, God's going to get them. They're getting excited about Amos's words until Amos gets even closer and he starts talking about Judah in chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. But I want you to understand something. He was sent to Israel. And so even talking about Judah, now he's talking about that church across town. Those holier-than-thou folks. They've got the temple. They've got the capital city. They've got those kings that descend from David. Did they do something wrong? Do tell. Do tell. What was their sin, Amos? And they were getting really excited. And so he says in chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, he says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not turn away its punishment, because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Oh, no, they didn't. Are you serious? Judah is not keeping the law of the Lord? Shame on Judah. Now, let's be honest here this morning. When something bad happens to those people that you envy and are a little bit jealous of, isn't there something deep down inside that celebrates that? Can we be real this morning? There's some people in your life, maybe not too close, but just, just far enough away that you don't know the details and everything looks just great. They look holier than, they're the perfect family. And then all of a sudden, they start having trouble with their kids. And you're like, mm, okay. I knew I was better than them. And so, I mean, you know, there must be something going on there. I mean, I'm not saying, I don't want to judge, but there's got to be something. I mean, they're having financial problems, so, you know, there, there must be something going on. Not to judge. I, I would never judge, but, you know. And you get a little excited about it. Israel was hearing about their foreign enemies and the judgment that was coming. Israel was hearing about those surrounding godless nations that were plaguing their existence. 
And now they were hearing juicy tidbits about Judah disobeying the law of God. Man, wow. I mean, I mean, I might not be different than them, but if I had the holy city and I was able to go to the temple, I'd be a little more faithful. And so now it's coming back to bite them. You know, you do, I reap what you sow. So they started to get excited about Amos's message. But then Amos's concentric circles of condemnation finally reach the bullseye. Where did God send Amos to preach? He sent him to Israel, didn't he? And so now the judgment was coming home to Ruth. Look at chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down on every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink. In other words, you encouraged them to be disobedient to me. And you commanded the prophets, saying, Do not prophesy. Behold, I am weighed down by you, as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. Therefore, flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow. The swift of foot shall not escape, nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord. He's talking about the day of judgment and wrath that is quickly coming upon Israel. In fact, we know that uh, by history's calendar, in about 40 years, God would allow the Assyrian army to sweep over Israel and displace and kill most of the people of that nation. Why? Because for three sins and a fourth, time and time again I warn you and you ignore the warning and so I am done. Judgment is coming. Judgment's coming. And then you could hear a pin drop as Amos preached. You know, don't we, don't we encourage the wrath of God on the sin of others? Right? We hear about the sin of other people. And we're like, man, get them, God. But then when it comes to us, we beg for God's mercy. We ask God to overlook our personal sin. Well, what does this man Amos and his message of condemnation mean for us today? There's two things that I think Amos wants us to do as a result of the God that he served then and the God that we serve now. And the first is this. We need to escape God's wrath. Did you know that the same God that sent Amos with this message of condemnation to Israel is the same God we serve today? He is just as holy now as he was then. His standards are just as high now as they were then. And we are all sinners before a holy God. We are all sinners. And I know that's not a popular message. I know that's not good news. That's why Amos is not so famous. Because his message is, you guys are sinners. 
You deserve God's judgment and wrath. Well, we're all sinners. We all deserve God's judgment and wrath. We're sinners by birth. We're sinners by choice. Maybe you're here and you're like, well, define sin. Well, sin is doing anything that God condemns, but it is also, hear me, church, not doing anything that God commands. It is doing anything that God condemns. It is not doing anything that God commands. That is sin. So given that definition, wouldn't you say we're all sinners? We all fall short of the glory of God. And were not for Christ, we would all stand to receive God's judgment and wrath. Romans 2.5 says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent or unrepentant and rebellious heart, you are treasuring or storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. We don't like to dwell on those verses. We like to dwell on God is love and God is good and uh, God welcomes us and He's merciful and He's, re- he, he's, uh, he's gracious and that's true. We like to quote John three sixteen and 17, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through Him might be saved and that is true. But Jesus goes on to tell Nicodemus in John three eighteen through 21, he says, He who believes in him, talking about himself, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. He's saying, if you believe in me, you can avoid God's wrath. But if you do not believe in me, If you do not repent and turn from your sin and trust in me, you stand condemned. The wrath of God, which is described in Amos, is coming upon you because you still are in your sin. But I thought God was gracious. I thought God was merciful. I thought God was loving. He is. That's why we're still alive today. But he's warning us. He's calling out to us. And he's saying, escape the wrath that is to come. I hear all the time, how could a loving God condemn anyone to hell? He doesn't. A loving God doesn't condemn anyone to hell. He simply says, thy will be done. Thy will be done. I've made a way of escape. I sent my son to pay the price for your sin. Receive him and be rescued. Reject him and experience the wrath of God. Well, maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior. My message to you, and it's, it's not good news. Like Amos, I'm here to say, you stand condemned in your sin. And the wrath of God awaits. That's the bad news. The good news is that you can escape the wrath of God by repenting of your sin, turning away from it, and trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It's as easy as saying, God, save me. Jesus, save me. I turn from my sin and trust in you. But in conclusion, I want to talk to the church. Because maybe you're here, maybe you have trusted in Jesus for salvation. That means you've escaped the coming wrath. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are saved. You are secure. You will be saved from the coming wrath. But you know, Jesus doesn't save us and leave us like the world, does he? He saves us to conform us into the image of His Son. Jesus died to make us different. 
And some of you haven't changed. As you read through Amos 1 and 2 and, and you think about God's coming wrath and you think maybe, man, I've escaped that because I'm in Christ. God will hold us accountable for the way that we've lived our lives. He died to make us different. You see, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us through his son whom he's appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. And in Titus 2 it says, for the grace of God which brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Why? So that he might purify us and cleanse us from every lawless deed and make for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. We're to live holy lives, brothers and sisters, because of Jesus. Jesus died to make us different. So the challenge for us is not to escape God's wrath. You've already done that by, by your faith in Jesus Christ. But the challenge from Amos is to reflect God's glory. Amen. The church looks so much like the world these days, it's hard to tell us apart. Pastor Levi Lesko quoted Psalm 34, 8. He said, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good, but the world can't taste if we are not salt. The world can't see if we are not light. We are to be salt and light. We are to be different than the world. 1 John 2, 15 through 16, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The message to the unbeliever today is avoid God's wrath. Repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus. The message to the Christian today is reflect God's glory. 1 Peter 1.16 challenges us with this admonition. Be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. The lion is roaring from his holy city. He's done with half-hearted worship. He is done with hypocrisy. He is done with moral depravity. And he says, wrath is coming. And now in this age of grace, he's saying the only way to escape the wrath is to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Jesus, on the cross, took God's wrath for our sin. He took God's wrath on our behalf. All you have to do now is turn from your sin and trust in Him, and you are safe and secure. But if you're a Christian, Jesus died to make us different. We stand this morning, every head bowed, every eye closed. The lion is roaring, church. He is a holy, he is a just God. We must hear his voice before it's too late. And he is saying, repent, turn around, you're going the wrong way. 1 Peter 4.17 says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? It has to begin here, guys. What difference do they see in our life? Because we have Jesus. Earlier in our worship service, we read a powerful passage of Scripture 
Psalm 91, 14 through 6. It's a great promise from God for those who believe in Him. He says, the Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. I will reward them with a long life and I will give them my salvation. Do you need to escape the wrath of God this morning? Put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's as simple as saying, God, I know I'm a sinner and I ask you to save me. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Give me a new life. Save me today. It's as easy as that. There are people here across the front that would love to counsel you from God's word and show you how to do that. This morning, if you need to be saved, I invite you to come as we sing. Maybe you're here this morning, you need to pray. Maybe you're not pleased with some things in your life. Maybe as I was preaching, the Holy Spirit began to point things out to you that need to change to make you more like Christ so that you can be salt and light in a lost and dying world. Jerry Falwell used to always say, if you can ever remember a time where you were closer to God than you are today, it's because you're backslidden. Draw close to God. He'll draw near to you. Say, God, I'm tired of compromising. I'm tired of being a hypocrite. Today, I'm going to chase after you. Set my heart on fire with your word. Father, we come before you this morning, and I pray that if there's somebody here that doesn't know you as Savior, that as we sing these songs, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Give them the courage to step out and to come and talk to someone here this morning so that they can escape the coming wrath against sin. Lord, I pray that you would convict all of us and draw us close to yourself. When you come again for your church, you want a clean church. You want a church that is not conformed to the world, but that has been transformed by the renewing of our minds. Lord, help us to surrender to your leadership in our life, to clean up our act for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you need to come this morning as we sing, please come.